Okay, I was, I'm asking Pastor Joe, there's no song before the message? <laughs> he said he'll come up and sing for us. Would you like that? <laughs> uh, we're going to be waiting a long time if we have to wait for that. Hey, uh, thanks for being here today. This is, this is great. I'm excited to be here with all of you, and we are continuing in the book of Romans, which has been very cool. How many of you studying the book of Romans? Okay, we're kind of turning a corner uh, today because we're getting to Romans chapter 12, and really, I think from, um, as you know, if you've been studying with us, a lot of the book of Romans, the first part is, um, it's about sound doctrine. It's about really understanding God and who he is and what he's done. And, and a lot of it is about uh, how nobody can really uh, become, through their own efforts, deserving of God's favor. Nobody can really work their way to salvation. And one of the things that means is uh, we've got to, you know, be very grateful for all that God gives to us. It also means there's no room for superiority or arrogance or lording it over someone else. Uh, you may have gotten a feel for this, that that was a problem sometimes in the church at Rome between the, the Jewish people and the Gentile Christians. They're all Christians. They all know Jesus. But sometimes they didn't get along because they were so different in terms of their cultural background, their religious background, and all of that. So part of what Paul's doing is he's trying to put everybody on level ground. He's basically saying, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and, and the wages of sin is death, and so we all deserve, you know, judgment and condemnation, but also through faith in Jesus, not through our works and not through our religious heritage, uh, not through our rituals and, and religious practices, but through the grace of God and our faith in Jesus, uh, we can open ourselves to receive all that God wants for us. And so it's really a a wonderful good news kind of uh, letter, even though some of it seems a little doctrinal and, and uh, theological. I think sound theology is really, really important uh, to live a good Christian life. We need to learn to think God's thoughts after him, and we need to think rightly about God if we're going to really understand ourselves and our world and God's will and what he's called us to, if we're to understand that rightly. It begins with understanding God rightly. Anyway, we turn a corner today, uh, Romans chapter 12, and in light of all that God has described, in fact, a lot of it is about the mercy of God uh, in the way that he has saved us and the way that he has justified us. And, and then he says uh, at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, in view of God's mercy, I want you to do something. So let me, let me just begin uh, with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, if we have time today, I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Uh, but I want to really focus a little bit on these first two verses because I think this is the key to the whole thing. And really what Paul is saying is that uh, Jews and Gentiles, and, and if you're in Christ, all of us as well, uh, we have, uh, despite whatever background and pattern of disobedience has marked our lives, uh, now uh, through Christ, uh, we are given grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. So it's wonderful. And he's basically saying, you know, that God is a merciful God to disobedient people. And I don't know about you, that encourages me a great deal. God is a merciful God to disobedient people and that God is a wise and generous giver. In fact, at the end of chapter 11 there, he says, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? In other words, God doesn't owe us anything, right? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? 
For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And I think it's a great ringing statement of, you know, God who's this wise and generous God uh, is to be glorified forever. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 12, he's going to say, okay, in view of God's mercies and his love and his faithfulness and his grace, how shall we then live? What are we to do? And he says, in view of God's mercies, there is an appropriate response. There's a suitable response for all of us. It's a reasonable response. And that response is, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when he says offer your bodies, he he doesn't mean just your physical body. He means your whole self. He's saying offer your whole self. Now, uh, first century Jewish people, they were well familiar with sacrifices, right? The blood of animals that, that were offered in sacrifice Uh, for sins and for guilt and all of that. So this is what he says here. He says, uh, God's not looking for those kind of sacrifices anymore. Jesus made his sacrifice, sacrificed himself once and for all on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And then he's going to say, okay, in in our response, because Jesus died for us, our response is to live for him. Because he died for us, our response is to live for him and to give ourselves to him. And so uh, now he says, in view of God's mercy, you be a sacrifice. But not that, you know, one-time sacrifice like, oh yeah, I gave my life to Jesus at a camp many years ago, or I prayed a sinner's prayer and invited him in. It's not that. He says, offer yourself, and the word offer here is a verb that's a continuation verb. Continually, daily, offer yourself, and offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Now it may be, and I know this is happening, uh, there are more Christians being martyred in the world today than ever before in history. And there have been more, more Christians killed for their faith in the, in the 20th and 21st centuries than the previous 19 centuries combined. So there are Christians who are, you know, in obedience to God and offering up their lives to God are actually sacrificing their physical life. Uh, that, may, uh, that may happen to some of us. Who knows what the future holds? But for most of us, I suspect, we're not going to be asked to sacrifice our life all in one fell swoop, in some big heroic moment, take a bullet for somebody or something. Uh, For most of us, we're going to do what it says here in Romans 12. It's offer yourself continually, daily, and and not as a sacrifice that is just killed that day, but as a living sacrifice, which means every day I kind of like present myself on the altar. Every day, you know, and Chuck Swindoll says this, he says the problem with living sacrifices is they want to keep crawling off the altar. But a living sacrifice, you know, you, it's like you put yourself on the altar. You say, God, here am I. Here's my life. I belong to you. You belong to me, Jesus, but I belong to you. And I'm giving my life to you. Here's what Paul says. In view of God's mercy, here is our appropriate, suitable, proper, reasonable response. Offer your whole self as a living sacrifice to God every day. I was reading this story, uh, oh, it was in Sojourner's Magazine by a woman named uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, and she's from an African-American background, and she said, in the days before the Civil War, enslaved people of African descent were not legally permitted to marry. I didn't know this. Uh, She says, their unions were not recognized by law. So instead of a marriage ceremony, men and women, uh, if they wanted to vow to love and serve and protect each other, uh, they would signify their commitment not by a marriage ceremony, because they couldn't do that, but uh, I never heard of this. Uh, they, would, they would jump in unison over a handcrafted broom. Did you know this? 
So there's a handcrafted broom, and then if the, the man and the woman wanted to signify their commitment to each other, even though it couldn't be a legal marriage in their society at that time, they would in unison jump together over the broom. And uh, when they did that, on one side of the broom they were single, and then on the other side the two became one in the spiritual realm, even if their union was not recognized by law. And I, I wonder if, I'd never heard of this practice before, but I wonder if... Uh, symbolically, that's what we need to do. If it's our time to say, you know, I'm going to link my life with Jesus, and it's time for Jesus and me to jump over the broom together, meaning that we are, our lives are together now, intertwined, and that my life now is going to be lived in love and devotion and faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe it's, maybe it's true for you. Is this the time for you to jump the broom with Jesus and to say yes to him? and to offer your whole self as a living sacrifice. Now, interestingly, Paul says here, there's three things we've got to do if we want to really know and discover and experience God's will. Now, if you know God, and you know that God is good, and He's faithful, now you think about this. If God is real, if God is good, if God is faithful, then the very best thing I could do with my life would be to experience His will, right? To, to dis discover it, to discern it, and to walk into it and to experience it. In fact, uh, Jesus at one point, he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. It's like, this is what I live for. This is my, my bread and butter. Uh, this is what I live for, to, to do the will of the one who sent me. Now, Paul is going to say, you know, you can know God's will. In fact, you can test and approve, which means you, you can experience God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. But there's some things that have to happen if that's going to happen. So I, I, I want to look at this and basically say, I think there's three prerequisites here. You know, like if you, if you go to college or something and you take a course and you often find like you can't take this course until you take a previous course, right? A prerequisite. I think here there's three prerequisites for discerning God's good and pleasing and perfect will. The first one is we've got to offer our, ourselves, our whole selves to God continually as a living sacrifice. The second thing he says in verse 2 is he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. You know, in a sense, if I'm going to link my life with Jesus, then I've got to break up with my other gods, my other idols. Like, you ever heard the story about the woman who, uh, she started dating some guy, and, and, and the guy views the relationship very seriously, and, and then uh, he says to her, you know, I really would like to take you out to dinner. And uh, she says, oh, that sounds fun. Can I bring a date? And like she totally missed the point, right? He, he's inviting her into a relationship between himself and herself, and, and she doesn't get it. Well, I think sometimes people who name the name of Jesus, we're a little bit like that. We want to say, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord, but we haven't realized that if he's going to be your Lord, it means forsaking all other gods, right? That you've got to jump over the broom, and you only jump over the broom with one person. So he says, offer your whole self to God every day. I think it was Martin Luther who said this, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the reformer in the, in the 15th century, uh, 16th century, he said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, I have kept. And, you know, it's like, you know, Jesus says, what good is it going to do to gain the whole world and yet to lose your, your, your soul, to lose your life? 
So I've held many things in my hands. I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, I still possess. So offer your whole self to God every day and then break up with the world. Break away from the conformity to this world's pattern and mold. He's, he's saying, you know, if you're going to go very far with Jesus, then you've got to distance yourself from being in love with the world. In fact, is it book of, book of James, whoever, whoever's a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. And so this is what he's saying. He says, uh, offer your bodies to God and do not conform to the pattern of this world. There was an older Bible translation that said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And you know that's what the world's always trying to do, right? To squeeze us into its mold. And he says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold because if you allow that, then you're not going to be a friend of God. Someone put it this way. They said, you know, like if you think about this, a ship is in the ocean, right? That's a good thing for the ship to be the, in the ocean. And Christians are to be in the world. And the church is to be in the world. The ship is in the ocean. That's all fine and good. You know what's not so good? When the ocean is in the ship. That's not so good, right? If the ocean is in the ship, that ship is starting to go down. That ship is beginning to sink. Now, isn't that the place of so many people today? We say, uh, we're a Christian in the world, and that's all well and good. Jesus said, in fact, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. That's all well and good to be the Christian in the world. But if the world is in the Christian, that's not so good. It's starting to go down. So here's what, here's what Paul says. Offer your whole body as a living sacrifice and do not be conformed to the world. Uh, why does he say that? Is it because he's some killjoy? He doesn't want us to have any fun? It's because he's saying, if, if you want to experience the, the fullness and the richness of God's good and pleasing and perfect will, then, then that's got to be your focus. That's got to be your priority. And uh, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And, and that means that, you know, all other loves, and we do have, we love other people, we love other things, some of us love sports or whatever we love, all other loves uh, have to take a back seat, right, to our love for Jesus. So here's what he's saying. You, you can experience God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, but there's three prerequisites. The first one is offer your whole self to God every day, continual action, a daily occurrence, and then break away from conformity to this world, and this world's patterns and values. And then the third thing is, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, it's, now this is a passive verb. It doesn't mean I transform myself. Be transformed means allow yourself to be transformed. Who's going to transform you? It's got to be God, right? But how does God transform you? God transforms you by the renewing of your mind, by the changing of your mindset, your values, your worldview. If you're in a relationship with Jesus... It is vital that you're in God's Word, right? Because every day we're bombarded by all kinds of messages that are not from God about you need this, you're no good because of that, or you're good because of this, or you know, you'll be happy if you get this product, or if you look differently, or if you weigh less or weigh more. You know, there, there's messages, thousands of messages that we're bombarded with every day that come to us from the world. How are we ever going to have our minds renewed so that we think God's thoughts after Him? so that we love the things that he loves, so that we hate the things that he hates, so that uh, his priorities become our priorities. How is that ever going to happen? You know how it happens? We get transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, you know how you say, you know, change your mind. We can change our minds to some extent. But, but you know, for our minds to really be renewed by the Spirit of God, it's going to take the Word of God. And the Spirit of God will use the Word of God 
to change the people of God so that the people of God become like the Son of God for the glory of God, right? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, that's what changes us. And he says, so I can't renew myself, but I can be renewed. I, I can practice disciplines in my life where God has a lot of freedom to work on me, to change me, to alter my, my way of thinking. So we've got to invite God, and God, invite God to transform you by the renewing of your mind. And if, you, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, then isn't it important to spend time with him? Is it important, isn't it important to listen to him, to seek him, to seek direction from him, and, and to want to know him better? So we need to be in God's word. And then progressively, our thoughts will become his thoughts, right? Our ways will become his ways. And like Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And uh, another thing Jesus said very near the end of his life, he says, he's praying to the Father. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. John 17, verses 3 and 4. You think about it, Jesus coming, he knows, you know, we, we may not know when our lives are ending, but Jesus knew his life was about to end, that he's about to be betrayed and arrested and, and uh, tortured and crucified for the sins of the world. And so he realizes he, he's up right there at the end. He's praying what we call the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And he says this, Father, here in my last hours, as I assess my life, I have brought you glory by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And whenever I read that, it makes me think, will I be able to say that at the end of my life? I don't know, you know, if, I, if I'll know my ending is coming or if it's just going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. But will you be able to say that, uh, Father, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. In other words, that I discerned your will, I discovered your will, and I walked into it and I experienced it and I fulfilled it. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think that would be a complete life. That would be a successful life, however long or short. Now, what God's will is, is kind of spelled out in the rest of the book of Romans from this point on, chapter 12, uh, 13, 14, 15, uh, and chapter 16. So, so we'll be looking at that in the com coming weeks, but let's look at two things today about God's will that are absolutely essential. Okay, and then this is going to get us into the rest of, of Romans chapter 12. One thing is God's will seems to be very closely wrapped up with humble service within the body of Christ the way that, that God's people care for and serve and love one another. Uh, the other part of God's will that we want to talk about today is it's about love in action. And so if you, and if you studied Romans 12 this week or, or recently, you, you probably realize this, right? First, it starts with offer your whole self to God. Don't be conformed to the world. Let God renew your mind and transform you by the renewing of your mind. And then it begins to talk about, well, what does that look like? And it talks about humble service to one another in the body of Christ. And it talks about love in action, love for God, love for each other, and love for the world. In fact, even love for our enemies. So, so let's, let's look at this. The next section, humble service in the body of Christ, that's Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Here's what it says. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. 
Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then lead diligently. Do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. First of all, Paul is going to say, by the grace given to me, I'm I'm going to tell you something now. And, And basically what he's going to tell us is how we should think about ourselves and how we should think about each other. He says, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment or or sensible thoughts in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. Now, we've seen this before in in Romans where Paul uh, several times actually in just the previous chapter, chapter 11, had to tell the Gentiles, uh, don't be arrogant, don't be conceited, right? Don't be proud uh, because they had that tendency, as many of us do too. So he's saying, don't be proud, don't be arrogant. And in fact, he says, don't think too highly of yourself. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That was the Gentiles' problem. They had a problem with pride, with arrogance, with conceit. Uh, You have that problem? I don't know. Some of us do. Some of us struggle with that. He says, rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, that doesn't mean put yourself down, call yourself a worm, condemn yourself, and just dwell on your faults all the time. In fact, I think it was C.S. Lewis. He says, you know, you know what a really humble person? A really humble person is not a person who's thinking less of themselves. A truly humble person is someone who's thinking of themselves less. Right? Not thinking less of myself, like, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm awful. But thinking of myself less. A truly humble person, they're just not preoccupied with themselves. And they're therefore free to think more about, about God and about, about other people. So he says, think about yourself with sober judgment. And then he's going to tell us how to think about each other. Look at this again in verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. (coughs) Here's what happened. I think here's what happened. He has already told us, be a living sacrifice, right? Now he's going to tell us, if you're really a living sacrifice and you belong to God, and, and a lot of us, you know, we like that. You know, that's, we're okay with that. I belong to God. Now he says this, okay, if you belong to God, then you're part of the body of Christ. And if you're part of the body of Christ, just like your human body, you know, your, your different parts of your body, they have different functions, but they're all interdependent, right? They all belong to each other. Your arm can't say, uh, today I want to take the day off, I want to go off on my own. You know, it's still part of your body, right? So if you hit me in the arm, I don't just say, oh, I'm so glad the rest of my body didn't get hurt. If you hit me in the arm, you hit, you hit me, right? You harm me. So our, we know this, the parts of our body, we're all attached and interdependent, right? Now, Paul wants us to think about one another in a new way. He wants to say, you are the body. You are the body of Christ. And you're interdependent. And, and if your, your brother or sister gets hit, you don't say, oh, I'm so glad it didn't happen to me. In fact, he's going to tell us later, you know, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. 
and grieve with those who grieve. You know, he's saying, you're in it together. If you are in Jesus, then you are part of the body of Christ. And then this, this so much goes against the grain of our culture. He says, you actually belong to each other. Uh, like in a family, like in a family, at least in a good, healthy family, we know this, we belong to each other, right? Uh, both of my daughters were sick recently, and I feel bad when they're sick. I don't say, oh, thank God I'm not sick. I'm so glad it's you. Yeah? I mean, I could do that, but we're family, and I love them. In fact, you know what a good father will say is, I wish I was sick instead of you, right? That's what a really good father would do, I, I imagine. <laughs> but but you, you understand what I mean, though, that in a family, we're, we're in it together. You know, one of, one of the family members gets laid off from their job. All of you are concerned. All of you care. Somebody gets kicked out of school. Somebody gets put in prison. It's like, oh, so glad it's you and not me. It's like, man, we're hurting together. We're rejoicing together. We're grieving together because we belong to one another. And that's what Paul is going to say here. Um, he says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, what, what's the practical implication of that? And here he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. And, and you see that section there about spiritual gifts? Uh, he says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And then he lists seven of the gifts, right? Prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and showing mercy. These are not all the spiritual gifts. You know what a spiritual gift is? A spiritual gift is a special endowment given by the Holy Spirit to a, to a believer, to a Christian. When, when you come to Christ, you receive forgiveness of your sins. You also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes to live in, in you, and if you give Him enough freedom, He will not only live in you, but He will transform you, and He will live through you. And one of the things the Bible is very clear about is the Holy Spirit has given to every believer a spiritual gift or some spiritual gifts. Every believer has at least one. No believer has all the gifts. And we all have different gifts. Uh, there's, uh, there's about three or four primary spiritual gift passages in the Bible. There's two in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one near the beginning of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, one near the end of 1 Corinthians 12. There's another list of spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, there's two spiritual gifts mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 4, the gift of serving and the gift of speaking, or serving kinds of gifts and speaking kinds of gifts. Uh, and here's what we learn. Okay, one thing is, uh, in this particular list, in Romans 12, there are seven gifts mentioned. I think there's, these are mentioned as illustrations of spiritual gifts. This is not a comprehensive gift. We don't read this passage and say, see, it shows right here in Romans 12 there are only seven spiritual gifts. I think these are mentioned as prominent gifts and examples uh, in, in the other list, you'll find other spiritual gifts mentioned. I've seen books that say the 19 spiritual gifts. I've seen a book that said the 21 spiritual gifts. I've seen spiritual gift inventories or surveys that, that list 27 spiritual gifts. So, uh, you know, who knows how many there really are? Uh, the, what I do know is that there's no one place in the Bible <clears throat> where all the spiritual gifts are compiled together. So where you see these different lists, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4, I think that in each case, depending on the circumstances, some examples are given. And here we're given seven, and uh, it's not a comprehensive list, although I think, and I, I don't know this for sure, but I think probably every one of you here today has at least one of these gifts, right? 
Prophesying is the, the ability to receive words from God and speak words of God. Sometimes prophecy uh, was predictive of the future, but often prophecy is just declarative. It, it's like God gives you the right thing to say at this time for a particular person or a particular group of people. Uh, the gift of prophecy. Uh, some of the other ones we're, we're probably more familiar with uh, serving. If it says if your gift is serving, then serve. That makes sense. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. See, I really believe that probably every one of us here has at least one of these seven gifts. Uh, if it is giving, then give generously. Now, we're all called to give, like to the Lord's work. But some people have a special ability given by the Holy Spirit to make a lot of money and give away a lot of money. And so their gift is giving. Okay? And then um, if it's to lead, do it diligently. Some, some of us have a gift of leadership. You know what, you know what the gift of leadership is? It's an expression of servanthood. All of these gifts are given so that people could serve. And some people in the body of Christ are called to serve by leading. That's to be an expression of servanthood. If it, is to, if it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, I love that because you think about somebody showing mercy with a dour face and a bad attitude. Like, okay, we're supposed to help the poor, so I'll go help the poor. We're supposed to go feed the homeless and not enough people signed up, so I'll go feed the homeless, you know. It's just, you know, if, if you're going to give mercy, <laughs> give it cheerfully. Give it cheerfully. Okay, so uh, you can look at that list and say, well, you know, ask the Lord, Lord, wh what gifts have you given to me? Now, this I will tell you, and this is not just from this passage, but from 1 Corinthians 12 and from Ephesians 4 and from 1 Peter 4. Spiritual gifts... What I can tell in the Bible is spiritual gifts are given for three primary reasons. Okay? First of all, spiritual gifts are given so that we can serve each other. So we can serve each other, love each other, help each other. And, and that's what we see here in Romans 12, right? Whatever you, gifts you have, you're supposed to use them to help other people. They're not just for you and gain glory, put my name in headlights, so I have these wonderful gifts. You know, now I'm a celebrity, I'm a spiritual gift celebrity. It's not that. Okay? Gifts are given to serve other people. Uh, secondly, gifts are given to edify the body of Christ. This is from 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Gifts are given to edify. That means to build up the body of Christ, to make the body of Christ, the church, strong. The church will only be strong and healthy and vibrant and attractive if people employ their spiritual gifts to serve the body, to build up the body. So spiritual gifts are given to serve other people. They're given to build up the body of Christ. And then uh, this comes out in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. If, if people are really using their gifts rightly, you know what happens? The body gets strong. People get served and blessed, but also God gets glorified. So I'm thinking, if God is giving you some special ability or talent or skill, and maybe it's something that's not even listed in the spiritual gift passages, but, but God is using your gift to serve other people, to build up and strengthen the church, and to glorify God, I'm willing to call that a spiritual gift. How about you? Now, here's what we're told. Everybody's been given at least one gift, and you are now, you exercise what's called a stewardship of that gift. You know what stewardship is, right? Stewardship means I've got something that doesn't really belong to me, but I'm responsible to manage it, to take care of it, right? I'm a caretaker of, of things uh, that don't belong to me. That's what stewardship is, whether it's my money, my time, my talents. Now here we're told God in his grace has given you an expression of his grace in your life that's called a gift. And your responsibility is to take that gift, offer it up to, offer it up to God, 
and use that gift to serve other people, to build up and strengthen the church, and to glorify God in the world. And if you don't do that, you know what? You're going to miss out on God's will. Because God gave you that gift so that it could be used, right? So don't leave your gift on the shelf. Don't leave it in the closet. Don't put it in the garage. Ask God, Lord, what gifts have you given me? The Bible tells me you've given me at least one. And don't be so humble that you say, oh, no, not me. I have no gifts. Don't call God a liar. (laughs) Don't call the Holy Spirit a liar. You've been given a gift. And now it's your responsibility to employ that gift to serve other people and to build up the church and to glorify God in the world. Okay, let me go to the last section. It's called Love in Action. Love in Action, verses 9 to 21. Romans 12, 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. I want you to know something. In the very last verse of this section, verse 21, he basically says the same thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, These two passages, verse 9 and verse 21, which basically say the same thing, bookend this whole passage. Okay? Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and here's a good quote from the Old Testament. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What is that all about? And there's a lot of differences in scriptural interpretation on that verse. What does it mean that if I feed my enemy and give him something to drink, I will heap burning coals on his head? And probably the most likely interpretation is that means that as a result of my kindness to somebody who has wronged me, hopefully it's going to bring them to shame and remorse. So with the hope that they will repent. In other words, I'm doing these good deeds not just to make them feel bad, but to make them feel bad so that they will be humbled and repent. That's the most likely meaning, that they would burn with shame and remorse in hopes that they will repent. And then verse 21 again, do not, become, do, not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now here's what I think is happening here. If you offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice on a daily occurrence, And if you decide, I'm not going to be conformed to the world, but rather I want God to transform me, beginning with the renewal of my mind, then my life is going to look this way. I'm going to express more and more a concern for the body of Christ, the family of God. I'm going to recognize that I'm part of that family. I'm going to take up my place in that family. I'm going to share in responsibility for the welfare and care and building up of that family and the health of that family. And I'm going to offer up my gifts in service to that family. And I'm going to serve other believers because we belong to each other. We belong together, okay? But also, if I offer myself as a sacrifice to God and I'm not conformed to the world and I'm being transformed by the reunion of my mind, I also am going to live a life of love. And, and you know what you see here in verses 9 to 21? You see love for God, love for fellow Christians, 
and love for enemies. Let's look at it real quickly. Uh, love for God is seen in verse 11 and 12. In verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. That means spiritual passion, right? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's about our relationship with God, and it's about loving God. If I'm going to walk into God's will and discern it and experience it, I am going to love God. Secondly, he talks about loving fellow Christians. You see that in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. You see it again in verse 13. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. And then you see it again in verses 15 and 16. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. He's saying, love's got to be sincere. And a sincere love will love God and cultivate our relationship with him. A sincere love will uh, be expressed in our love for fellow Christians, that we will love one another, we will care for one another. And then he says, and a sincere love will also even love those who persecute us. Look at verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That is so counterintuitive, right? If somebody persecutes you, our natural reaction is persecute them or at least avoid them or at least talk bad about them or at least grumble about them, right? He says, instead, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You know who can do that? I mean, you're thinking, man, that's impossible. There's no way I could do that. How could I bless those who persecute me? How could I want, want good for those who've wronged me? You know who can do that? People who are having their minds renewed by God's word and God's spirit. People who are being transformed from within by the work of God in their lives. And then he says, uh, when somebody persecutes you, bless them. Bless and do not curse. Uh, in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, I, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know why I love that verse? It's not always possible. I, I mean, sometimes uh, through, through no fault of your own, uh, somebody persecutes you and you can't be at peace with them. But he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And then he says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. So I was reading this story about, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but there was an American journalist named James Foley. And in August 2014, not, not quite two years ago, uh, he was beheaded by ISIS, the militant uh, you know, group in, in the Middle East. And American journalist James Foley was beheaded in Syria August 2014 by ISIS militants. And, um, you know, there have been too many of those stories, and it's very tragic and it's horrific. And imagine if that was, you know, your son. Here was the response of James Foley's parents. His mother, Diane, said this It saddens me, his continued hatred, the, the man who, who killed his, her son. It saddens me, his continued hatred. He felt wronged, and now we hate him. Now that just prolongs the hatred. We need to end it. That's the mother of the slain son. Diane Foley said, as a mother, I forgive him. You know, the whole thing is tragic. And then at the time of the murder, James Foley's father, John, said this, we know that Jimmy's free. He's finally free. And we know he's in God's hands. And we know he's in heaven. And, you know, it's such a horrific situation. 
And none of us probably could, could really know what we would do if that was our son. But this amazing thing, I mean, to me, this is a miracle. This is like, you know, when the Red Seas parted or the blind are healed. This is like a miracle that these parents would say, uh, the ISIS militant terrorist who beheaded my son, I forgive him. That's a miracle. And you think, that's crazy, that's insane. But you know, it's exactly what the scripture says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for the wrath of God. Okay, I, I just wanted to read you one more story before we uh, close this, this time together, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. But this story comes from uh, the civil rights, very early in the civil rights movement. Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the first African-American child to attend an all-white elementary school in the South. And Robert Coles, who's a, a child psychiatrist and author, he, he interviewed her, and uh, he was struck uh, by just her humility and, and love. But she, you know, and a lot of you know the story about Ruby Bridges. She was, she was persecuted and harassed and ridiculed. Um, Ruby was one of the black children who, in the face of abusive, even potentially violent resistance, began the process of school desegregation in New Orleans. Day after day, Ruby, this young girl, elementary school, was ushered to and from school alone while onlookers taunted her. And Robert Coles, the psychiatrist, was deeply troubled by the calmness of the child. And, and so, you know, he's a psychiatrist, he's thinking something's wrong with this child. She's so calm and peaceful when people are harassing her and calling her names and ridiculing her and threatening her for attending this white school. And uh, so the psychiatrist in him, he's concerned. He was deeply troubled by the calmness of the child, and so he visited the family and Ruby's mother told him that Ruby prayed every night for the mob that threatened and harassed her every day. And when he asked the parents why they would ask this of Ruby, they were perplexed and they answered that this was what a person is supposed to do, that it was the Christian thing to do. And, you know, God used that little girl, Ruby Bridges, to change the world, right? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Let's pray. Lord, how much we need you. We, uh, we're so inadequate as lovers to love with this kind of love. But Lord, what we read in your word is that you want to do this supernatural transformational work in our lives. So if we're naturally selfish, Lord, help us to be Christ-centered instead of self-centered. And Lord, if we tend to hoard our gifts and keep them to ourselves or, or use our talents to glorify ourselves, Lord, teach us what it means to offer up ourselves to you and then to offer up our gifts to you. And Lord, help us to have the, the personal security through Jesus and to be so washed over by your love that we would love others with the love that we've received from you. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for, for your word and your spirit and the transforming work that you are doing in us and among us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.